Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is the 102nd episode of Between the Covers, the second of the new year, an interview I'm particularly gratified to share because Yunsung Kim's poetry collection, Gospel of Regicide, in my mind has unjustifiably been flying under the radar, and I hope our conversation will make you as intrigued by her work as I am. Before we start, I wanted to alert you to some new things about the show. Between the Covers, still a listener-supported labor of love. You can still go to patreon.com slash between the covers and support the show if you find the conversations fulfilling. And you will see when you go there that you can still get a copy of Jesse Ball's fantastic co-written out-of-print book, Vera and Linus, a collectible as a reward. But as of the beginning of 2018, I am also now offering bonus material from the conversations themselves. And I'm open to hearing from Patreon supporters what sorts of material they would like me to solicit from the guests once the main conversations are over, whether it be the reading of additional poems or essays, the giving of writing and craft advice, or something else. Today, it is Yunsung Kim reading prose poems from her forthcoming unpublished novella, Copy Paper, which will join Lainey Zumas's reading of her essay, Voss, Brie, Fen, Light, up on the Patreon page. So you can check all of this out at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. Stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet and critic Yoon Song Kim. Kim has a doctorate in literature from the University of California, San Diego, and is a professor in the English Department of Northeastern University. Prior to this, Kim was an artist-in-residence in Chicago Public Schools for hands-on stanzas at the Poetry Center and at Urban Gateways. Kim's essays on literature, digital cultures, and art criticism have appeared in The New Inquiry, Art in America, The Margins, Model View Culture, and the anthologies Global Poetics and Reading Modernism with Machines, among others. Her poems can be found in the Iowa Review, Denver Quarterly, Seattle Review, Action Yes, and Feral Feminisms. She is the recipient of a 2016 Yale University Pointer Fellowship and a 2015 Andy Warhol Foundation Arts Writers Grant for the creation of Contemporary, 
an online arts forum and archive of women of color and queer artists and emerging and alternative perspectives on radical aesthetics, which she co-founded and co-edits. Yoon Sung Kim is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her debut book of poetry, Gospel of Regicide, from Noemi Press. John Keane says of Gospel of Regicide, Yoon Sung Kim develops a thrilling method for unwriting lyric even as she reimagines it, creating a socially engaged poetry of and for our time. Anti-capitalist, feminist, and anti-racist, yet critical of non-intersectional understandings of identity and selfhood, she is unafraid of drawing the sacred from the pedestrian and unbeholden to whiteness as foundation. These poems, mutable in form and style, yet cohesive in their vision, suggest a complex and different order allowing us to complete the story. Kim kills the king, blesses us with a superlative collection as a result. Wendy Shu adds, Yoon Sung Kim's Gospel of Regicide is a work of holy, gorgeous betrayal. Of what? Swallowed language, accepted debts, the violence of memory, the violence of whiteness. With elegant, sharp, and dangerous language, these poems memorialize as incisively as they dissent, and what a potent dissent she has written. Welcome to Between the Covers, Yoon Sung Kim. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me here today. So among many things that the Gospel of Regicide is in conversation with, one of them principally is the apocryphal second century Gnostic text, the Gospel of Judas. So talk to us a little bit about the Gospel of Judas, what it is about and how it is, what sort of function it's playing within the Gospel of Regicide. Yes, thank you for that question. Um, so when I first found the Gospel of Judas uh, as a literature person, as someone who's really interested in uh, literary analysis and narrative analysis, I thought it was so incredibly fascinating that there was an entire um, kind of cult and, and school of thought that had imagined um, Judas as a central figure um, n- a central figure in the revolution in terms of not the revolution as we currently understand it, as he is like the traitor who enacts um, the crucifixion of Jesus, but he is a part of the sort of writer of the of, of the revolution, if that makes sense. So for those who are uh, not familiar, the Gospel of Judas um, lays out how Judas was the only disciple who Jesus could trust um, in in terms of of taking on the the sort of narrative understanding that this part of the plot, the betrayal, was necessary for the next part to 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 unfold, which is um, the crucifixion, and that all of the other disciples um, thought of legacy or thought of love in more material terms. So the idea that 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 they could not be narratively read would be um, cumbersome to them or that they could not understand it. So for those who have read the text, it sort of says things like um, the other disciples really still kind of don't understand um, that they have these other sort of understandings of, of materi- 
materials as related to the to God, and the only one who really understands is Judas. This, I, when I first sort of read this, I found this to be incredibly powerful because this is essentially a literary analysis of of, of the Judas figure as um, a kind of device that we could reimagine for various different um, political. Um, how how would I say it for 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 various different pol- political um, purposes? And there's some there's some controversies even within the Gospel of Judas around the translation I, I was reading, and even debate within it whether he's a demon or whether he's set apart as as the holy one. Right. Um, so uh, obviously the the. Sc- the scroll or the text when it was found, uh, as most of the texts are found, was uh, in fragments. So how one decides to translate the fragments and how one decides to translate the fragments will um, affect the reading of the text. But the premise of the text is also really predicated on the notion that um, the the figure of Jesus or the figure of the Savior, the figure of God, is not one that can be duped um, and is one who is plotting with with you, not not necessarily against you, and that in that in itself is something that I think that we could really unfold, and so um, that's what I thought was really interesting about the Gospel of Judas is it's that the person who is, if we're to use um, like Benjamin's terminology, like the Messiah, is sort of. Uh, configuring the plot with, and even the the plot of betrayal is within this um, sort of imagining. So uh, thinking of this idea that killing the king may not be a betrayal Mm -hmm. at all, but maybe the holiest of acts, even as no one else will see it as such. Uh, We enter the gospel of regicide uh, with two gendered pieces that put us on unstable ground, uh, not knowing what or who to trust ourselves, uh, what interpretation is true. So it starts with a, a, a piece called He, which looks at the controversy over whether Judas was a demon or the way to salvation, but then followed by a world where women are perceived as interchangeable, all moving through the world smiling and nodding, but behind their facades, they themselves are actually plotting to kill. And I was wondering, in light of this entrance into the text, if you could talk about the origin story of the project or the impulse or or perhaps what led you to suddenly realize that you had a book project when as you were putting these pieces together. Um, yeah, thank you for that. So I, so, so Judas, I mean, so if we're really thinking about um, the figure that I grew up with in Bible study, uh, he's the person who's weaker. He has these kinds of material desires that are, that we're supposed to unlearn as good um, students of the Bible. Um, he can be, he, he, he's a traitor. He's a traitor of the thing that's most important to him, the love that, um, is unconditional, essentially. So um, a text that reimagines that all of this was a, a masquerade, a performance, a misreading of the of the entire function of what the Messiah is supposed to do, uh, it, for me, was incredibly, uh, it was a gendered text. It's a kind of gendered reading or a misreading of gendered performances, in particular, of the way in which um, people who are who are the the object or the subject of love and 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 power might actually be um, a part of a different kind of narrative entirely. Well, I want to ask you 
so Banu Kapil has written some some really interesting um, prose about this book, and she's a writer that I love. Um, and and I'm intrigued by some of the things that she said, but I don't know that I entirely understand some of them. So I, I want to read something that she wrote about this piece um, that we are discussing about the women plotting to kill at the beginning of your book and hear your thoughts on what she is what she is getting at. So she says, near the start of Gospel of Regicide, Yun Song Kim writes, I hate everything about your presence. It's a turn in the work that ruptures the phatic communion between vocal, inhibited, and non-maternal participants, the agreed-upon exchange of what is uttered and then named. It's not simply in this instant that a colonial self splits off, but also that the economic category of compensation has reached its limits. Ardor, aversion, and courage are all present in this line. What strikes you when you hear her say that about that that piece within the collection? Bonnie is so amazing. Um, I'm such a huge admirer of her poetry, and I've written a few different essays about her work. So for her to write that about my book was incredible. Um, she also once told me that um, her blog was of was the most important thing to her because it's the thing that she believes generates no money, that the exchange of capital is um, is obsolete uh, in the in the function of, of her blog, which I thought was really interesting when I when I read that. So I think what was really interesting about this for me was uh, the collection, and to return back to a, a question that you had, the collection actually began as a series of poems um, under the banner of performance for debt. Um, and that's how the collection sort of moved for a number of years as a, as a sort of as a collage of poems under this title that imagined um, a series of, of performances, literally, um, about what it might be to, to do kind of a dead exchange for a performance. Um, and then slowly it moved um, to the gospel of regicide once I began reading um, a, a bit more about Judas and, and betrayal and sort of thinking about the idea of um, uh, of treachery in a different way. So this idea of debt um, and the, the economic with regicide is very closely held together for me. So uh, when when Banu is sort of saying that um, that the economic category of compensation has reached its limits, um, I, I am really interested in how um, we might be able to un- to reimagine um, the way in which uh, everything is commodified currently in our. Uh, even in our literary existence and in our narrative existence. And I, I, I am really interested in the book and sort of thinking about um, the, the narrative fixture of treachery as a way to sort of implode um, the, the way that um, co- compensation and economic um, commodification c- constructs our, our imagination. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I will say a little bit more that this is not, I know that I'm not the only one thinking about this. Uh, Max Haven, a uh, theorist and a writer I very much admire, um, has an essay called Finance as Capital's Imagination. And he, he, he looks at the way in which um, uh, so much of our imaginative thinking 
or so much of, of the way in which even the imagination is constructed kind of can be reflected back into the language of finance and vice versa. Um, and I'm really interested in people who are sort of writing and thinking about that. Well, the, the part of that analysis that she did that stuck out to, mm -hmm. or stuck with me was when she says the phrase, not simply in this instant that a colonial self splits off. And I came to understand that in my own way, using a poem that comes a little later in, in the collection that starts with the line, deliver us from whiteness, where you say, deliver us from their imagination, from the constant circulation of their language. You are all the same. And so when we think about the women who are seen as all the same, it feels like they are now flipping the narrative and saying it's actually actually the, the viewer of them that is the purveyor of sameness. Is yeah, that, that's, does that, I love that reading. Yes, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. That made me think of a couple things also. It reminded me of a tweet that you made about the New York Times review of North, North Korean literature that said... <laughs> um, Imagine a world where the imperial power discusses the casual genocide of your people and their translators decide what is and is not your literature. And you also, I, I think on that same day, were looking at the way Google Translate functions. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that in relationship to sameness? Because there's there's something actually within the, the mechanics of, of Google Translate that is producing a certain sameness. Right. From my understanding, the way that Google Translate works is that English is, uh, uh, it's it pivots to English. So it's English is the pivot language. So if one wanted to translate um, something from Spanish to Korean, say, it would go from Spanish to English and then, um, and then English to Korean. So part of the, the kind of um, the mess... Uh, um, for lack of a better word, of Google Translate is that English is, is its central uh, beacon and it everything must go through English in order for it to go through anything else, which um, is not new. Uh, I did, when, when I started reading about this, I read that um, the UN actually uses this practice as, as, as well um, for quote-unquote efficiency um, because, say, uh, there aren't um, so many speakers of, of Korean to, to Spanish in the imagination of UN policy. And this is what I'm really actually interested in, in is um, whenever someone says something is most efficient or that this is the form or this is the, the technology, I'm really interested in the imagination that imagined the, 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 the form and the technology because is it really true that um, there aren't that many translators from X to X or is it that the conditions and the technologies make it so that everyone is translating to English, um, and that English then becomes it's 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 almost like the power is normalizing itself. Hmm. It makes me think of uh, Don Miche's uh, "Hardly War." Mm -hmm. There's a page where there's a photo of a woman and a child in front of a tank, and then several lines of Korean, and then in English over and over again, I refuse to translate, I refuse right. to translate, I refuse to translate. Yeah, um, I love Dami's work, and I, I'm, I'm really grateful in particular for um, that the Hardly War, but The Morning News is exciting, which um, I was able to hear her read when I was at UCSD, and uh, I mentioned in the book that it, it's a reading that really transformed my life. Um, but, but the refusal to translate is really important. And translation, um, I think, is, 
I, I'm, I'm currently working on um, an essay on the politics of translation, so it's very much on my mind. But just to share with you, and I think it has something to do with my book, uh, on Christmas I was in Jinju with my brother. Uh, we were meeting the poet that we have currently been translating. Um, and so Jinju is sort of the, the central symbol of Jinju is this um, is the figure Nonge. Is her name, um, and the reason that she's a central figure is that during the 16th century, um, she killed uh, one of the Japanese invaders. Um, uh, as the legend goes, she locked um, him in an embrace uh, near the near near a cliff, um, and then threw them off together. So dramatic wow. and, and interesting, and, and all the, uh, the the different layers and. Uh, when I went to go visit her sort of memorial, so she's memorialized as this kind of like um, nationalistic, um, almost like anti-colonial hero, it mentions that um, in Korean it mentions that she was a kiseng, which um, essentially in the hierarchical sense of the 16th century, th that means that she was a slave um, or she was a, a property of the state. Um, and then in the English translation, um, Kizang is translated to companion for aristocrats. So mm. no mention of anything, of any kind of violence that, um, or the kind of unfreedom that her life was constructed by. And uh, I, I've been sort of, I, I, I thought a long time about the sort of uh, what it means for that, um, for whoever was translating this or essentially writing this new narrative in English to make this decision, but also what it means for someone who was essentially classified as unfree to kill uh, an invader and then become celebrated for this act. Like th there seems to be actually a lot more possibility in that narrative mm -hmm. than just um, a kind of a kind of lover of country it, there's there's a lot more there in case you just tuned in we're talking to Yoon Song Kim about her latest book Gospel of Regicide so in, in the Gospel of, of Judas there is the question of sacrifice the apostles other than Judas are misinterpreting Jesus's teachings they are still offering animal sacrifices and they mistakenly believe that Jesus sacrificed sacrificed himself for the sins of humanity when actually God would never expect that of, right. of Jesus. So in the gospel of regicide, we see sacrifice brought up in relationship to this Gnostic text with the lines, sacrifice is for the lower level gods, those not ready and those that just don't get it. And it makes me wonder what the alternative to sacrifice is. I don't know if that, if, um, what your thoughts would be about about that. Yeah. I mean, sacrifice is so essential to um, our current understanding of love and family. And um, the more I sort of was working on this book, I was, uh, I became really frustrated by how um, even our, our most kind of like radical uh, political narratives or structures are also very closely aligned with um, the Bible, essentially. So, um, Love, revolution, um, rupture, all, all of these things seem to be very closely aligned to um, different kinds of narrative points in the Bible. And I wanted to sort of think about how we might weaponize that instead of just kind of learning it and, and consuming it. What, it, what would it mean to, to weaponize um, the, the facets that are so readily um, available and 
and kind of consumed as, right? So like the figure, uh, the, the notion of sacrifice as, as the, the greatest kind of love, like the thing that one could really do, which is what the narrative is for Jesus, right? This is the, the biggest thing that you could do. Um, what might it mean to uh, instead reimagine love or reimagine revolution that does is not predicated on a kind of... Um, fundamental violence of, um, how might I say this, um, a fundamental violence that um, is rooted in, in change. It seems like the stakes are raised high between the gospel of Judas and the Bible, um, in the sense that the Bible, contrary to the gospel of Judas, says that it is better for a betrayer not to have been born which I think is part of, mm -hmm. of the gospel of regicide, mm -hmm. uh, which makes me wonder about your own background with the Bible, which you do give us a little insight to in the book. Um, w tell us a little bit about your background with the Bible growing up and in any ways that intersects with your, your background around confronting it in one language versus another. Yes. Um, so I, I I think this actually leads really well to uh, your question on sacrifice, and I will try. And this new this this question that you just posed will hopefully um, make some of my ideas a bit more concrete. Um, so I did grow up. I grew up in a really. Uh, um, my parents are both very religious, so I grew up um, knowing the Bible very well, um, or that that was a part of my sort of. Um, upbringing it was to sort of know the Bible, and everyone around me knew the Bible very well. Um, but I once once I decided that it was not the text for me. What was most surprising was that it, the what was inside of the Bible was still everywhere else. So if we're coming back to sacrifice, I mean, the notion that you work really long, hard hours um, for you know something, you know, for this paycheck for this thing that you give to someone, and this is your understanding of love, and it's their understanding of love. It's all kind of rooted in this, um, to me, what seems like a very biblical and uh, draconian um, notion of what is and is not um, love, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, so so once once I made the decision that, it, that I was no longer interested in the dogma of the church or church or, or religion um, as a kind of weekly activity, it, it, I was really kind of thrown to see how much of this existed everywhere else. I was hoping we could hear a couple mm -hmm. poems now. Um, uh, uh, Digital Threnody yeah. and the Gospel. Digital Threnody. A poem cannot solve tonight, however much I worship her. A poem does not solve, but I read another anyway. The title states it's about the apocalypse from yesterday. Each couplet his shoulders, an acquaintance with beauty towards his refrain, inner rhymes peering into steady oceans, his fear, his wants, his thoughts, not one cloaked metaphor, kindness, his hair, his lovers, his genes, him, 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 him. The disaster rectified in the witnessing of his collarbones, his square, uh, unbroken jaw, finished. I want to kill him. I close my eyes to invent the scenarios. I plead, poem, 
kill him. All of my dreams involve a murder, an eating of tongues. And yet the day's news of these exact events. The anathema is a poem I call my own that could have been written by him. Amen. The Gospel. I've been wanting to write an epic on treachery, the love it requires, its militancy, its gendered formations, the women, the vengeful women, the women in love, the woman who hates, how when she appears there are no questions, we just say, oh yes, a her, yeah, we know her, take her away. I want to write an ode to her, and how becoming her is the only goal in a resurrected life. We've been listening to Yin Song Kim read from Gospel of Regicide. So, so just after this poem, Judas is referred to as a her, as a woman. And it made me think about this question of sacrifice again, but in a more gendered way. I was hoping you could talk about the Korean legend uh, that you refer to in the book of the creature that disguises itself as a, a beautiful woman to lure boys in mm -hmm. order to ultimately eat their livers or hearts. Um, talk to us. Maybe you could first um, talk a little bit about the legend and then and then how you wove it into this question of, of treachery and empowerment. Of course. Um, so the, the, the legend, the myth that David is referring to is Kumio, which um, is a longer poem um, that ends the first section of the book. And in the legend, um, as the legend goes, Kumio is a, is a fox. Um, that I imagine as a wolf, um, or the poem imagines as a wolf. Um, the mission is for Kumio to collect the lie, the souls of nine men. Um, but in all the the iterations of the text, um, the fox she can only really collect eight. Something happens in nine. Um, some stories, some popular imaginings imagine that the the fox falls in love with a ninth one can't pull the trigger, um, can't, can't really take the soul. Um, some imagine that just some other kind of catastrophe happens that leads the, the Kumio themselves to make the decision to sacrifice their dreams, their, their desires um, for the life or for the life of the, the last um, man. So uh, yeah, it's like basically one of those stories to really kind of teach you some kind of I, I'm, I'm very cynical so I think that these stories are are almost always about they're supposed to kind of treat you how to be um, how to how to value your humanity in the most um, limited sense of the word human or um, to, to show you once again that like love and sacrifice are interchangeable and therefore um, well, mm -hmm. let me ask you a question. I'm not sure if this is in my own research of the sure. of the folklore, because I did look up some stuff about it or whether it was from engaging with your work. But one of those places I had, I had learned that maybe they were being used to, to tell daughters to stay close to their mothers and to get married earlier than maybe that they'd want to, which made me wonder if it was this also a story that was part of your family? Did you, Were you told mm -hmm. these tales and, and were they weaponized in a certain way yeah. to create a certain um, moral position in the world. 
Right. Um, so I don't think uh, the the part about sort of daughters staying closer to their mothers. I that's act, that's not really in the legend. I imagined it that it's a story f- that really teaches men to stay very suspicious of women and to stay very close to their mothers. Right. Oh, okay. So if if uh, the very beautiful woman that you're in love with is really trying to collect your soul to become something else because she has a secret agenda, well, then it's it's good to remain suspicious of all women except um, your mother It was my sort of interpretation of uh, how it, it's... Um, what what its sort of moralistic t- teaching was supposed to do, other than the fact that um, that sacrifice is really the way that the the story ends there. Um, I mean, as a as as someone who I, I think that for the most part, um, women identified people grow up with un- unless they're in a very non traditional household, um, the notion that a certain kind of womanhood or a certain kind of future that's um, defined by uh, marriage, a good marriage, um, is, is, is if not imparted by the parents, it's imparted by all the narratives around us from all the television shows to, to films and novels and so forth. So um, I grew up with it, um, but in, in, a, in a variegated sense, as in yeah. it, was, it was everywhere. Um, and I am really interested in that, in how that narrative, I, I'm really interested in how certain kinds of narratives continue to circulate. Um, and the circulation is so uh, redundant and, and at times to me almost boring that, that, that so many movies and so many poems and so many novels can have exactly the same um, plot and moralism and at the same time um, it's seductive and, and desirable and pleasurable yeah yeah and it brings us back to that idea of this production of sameness right again. right yeah so there's a there's a point in the book that I found really powerful where I feel like a lot of things come together for me. Um, a sense of sacrifice, much like the smiling and nodding women at the beginning happens on page 40, but it's not really sacrifice. It's more biding of time. Just like the women at the beginning who are biding their time. You have this sense that there's this, well, there's an explicit threat essentially mm-hmm. in the book, but an, an implicit threat in the sense that they're acting a certain way. And, but behind it, they're, they're, they're plotting the revolution. And also the sense on page 40 about the ways in which it seems impossible to find solid ground when you're in a system that's not really built by you. And I, I was hoping you could read the page and then we could, we could talk a little bit about it. I wrote something here but deleted it because I realized that it's just going to bring me more direct, personalized harassment. But this deletion will not be permanent this deletion is temporary. So just that we're clear in this deletion, if we don't say your name immediately, if we don't address you immediately, I will say your name directly at some point before I die. Uh, can, can you speak a little bit about this page? I found that so wonderfully chilling, and and I... Um, and inspiring, actually, at the same time, like the fact that there's sort of a temporary um, erasure, self-censorship that we know is not going to last, 
but but the withholding is made explicit mm-hmm. on the page. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about how how this page arrives here and and what function you feel like it's serving. Yeah, thank you for for actually pointing to this. It's actually it's not something that um, anyone really asks me about. Though um, my decision to put it in the in the book um, was is also a part of um, what's what's on the page. Um, so something that I was thinking about as I was putting the collection together was that um, was the way in which um, the lyric and the I would be read um, throughout as uh, as me, as me, the, the author, um, which is unfortunate, I think. And it happens to a lot of um, particularly non-white writers that everything that we write is essentially just... Um, the, the collection of small memories that we have. Um, and it's true that my memories are everywhere, but it's but I'm also thinking about um, many other things and debating with many other people and myself. Um, so I, I wanted to put this in here um, for, for many, uh, for a number of reasons. First, because this is true that the process of deletion and... Um, and taking out and removing and sort of trying to protect my my own um, self, not just my my voice, but my body is uh, actually a part of the process of writing. And I think that that's really important to state. Um, but also that if if one is going to, if there is a reader that's reading the I in this book as autobiographical, well, then this too remains that, um, that the autobiography uh, it, well, then I'm, it can't just be taken at um, face value because of all of the deletion and, and all of the things that is to come even even within the personal. So the, the something about the um, temporariness of the self erasure reminded me of the accusations coming out right now in the in the Me Too right. sexual harassment movement, because the the answer you often get to diminish the accusers is, well, if it's true, why did you wait so long Mm -hmm. to speak it? And it feels, I don't know if this is joining or engaging with that sentiment, but... Yeah, um, I mean, I think think that that it's very complicated because um, the way that someone decides to discuss um, the violence, not just in their lives, but the violence... Um, in the world is is very complicated, and for for there to be some kind of specific timeline as to how this should go about um, is is the imagination of the judicial system that we know is fundamentally broken in not just the United States but possibly all over the world. So this sort of why didn't you speak up is um, is a kind of enforcement of this um, of the system that says that. Uh, that things happen in, in that kind of order, like crime is committed, a quote-unquote crime is committed, um, someone comes forward, and then justice prevails. Um, and I think that at this point, it would be very dishonest to say that those are the three things that happen and in that order. Um, so, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm always sort of thinking about what, it, what is expected of um, that process and what that process sort of has done to the way that we even listen to people when they speak about violence, um, when they decide to share, when they decide not to share. I, I mean, what, is that? What, 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 what does it mean for someone to decide 
never to share, um, but to say that they will. Right. Yeah. I love that right before this piece, there's a line, the gods know that the only way to move the revolution forward is to have a man kiss you and take you to your enemies. That's, I thought that was so great. Oh, thank you. Um, to, to return to the Banu Kapil quote yeah. for a minute, um, and also to, you, you mentioned at the beginning how this originally was explicitly in the title about debt. Mm. Um, she uses the phrase, the economic category of compensation has reached its limits. And the issue of money and more specifically of debt is a recurring theme in, in your work. And it plays a crucial role in the traditional story of Judas, who takes money from the Jewish authorities and to betray Jesus. Um, but how should one understand the issue of debt and uh, financial and otherwise uh, in, in the gospel of regicide? Um, thank you for that question. Uh, I've been really interested in debt for quite some time. I read David Graeber's um, anthropological study on debt, and he sort of begins the the study. And I know that like Margaret Atwood has written about debt. Like mm. various figures have written about debt in in different ways. Um, but uh, David Graeber begins the the study with a sort of with the argument, with the anthropological argument that we think of money and then we think of debt. Like you owe someone that money, but it's actually it's the it's the function of that it's the inverse. It's that debt existed and so money had to exist. So anytime you see money or whatever it is that we think of as capital, it's just the signification or it's the signifier of of debt that's actually being moved around. Which um, and then the, the second argument that he makes is that debt is really linked to sin in terms of etymology, in terms of conception, in terms of how we sort of understand it. That's why the notion that um, things must be paid back is rooted in a kind of moral argument that there's no way um, to, to let it go unless a kind of mercy is enacted. So then debt forgiveness, so the language of kind of forgiveness uh, it, it is, is introduced because um, debt and sin are, are so closely linked. Um, well, yeah. you, mm -hmm. you actually explicitly referenced the scholarship of Cheryl Harris yeah. and mm -hmm. uh, her work, Whiteness is Property. And I was, I was hoping we could take this issue of debt and lean further into it yeah. with, with race. Um, it argues that while whiteness was originally conceived as a racial identity, it evolved into a form of property. And in this piece, she, she talks about her grandmother who passed as white. And she says about it, whatever retort might have been called for had been suppressed long before it reached her lips which that part, again, I feel that resonance with what you just read. For the price of her family's well-being was her silence. Accepting the risk of self-annihilation was the only way to survive. And I would love it if you could, um, in your own understanding, unpack this issue of whiteness as property, which is a very, probably for most people, is going to strike people's ears as a provocative uh, reformulation. Oh, I know it's it's so interesting because Cheryl Harris. I mean, I went, I presented at, I um, I presented a paper at the at the twentieth anniversary of whiteness as property at UCLA just a few years ago. So it's it's uh it's almost twenty five years old the text, and it was published um, in the Harvard Law Review. 
so it's been around for quite some time, but I, I think that that um, I'm I'm always surprised when I meet uh, particularly uh, scholars of literature who are who are unfamiliar with the text. And and what's so amazing about that particular text for me when I first read it is that she begins the piece with a poem that she wrote, an unpublished poem. So she she begins the 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 legal literature um, with an analysis of her own poetry, which um, I think is actually, uh, it's not something I've ever, I've ever even seen in, in, in poetry criticism, let alone um, mm. legal criticism. But um, so Cheryl Harris makes the argument that, um, that, that whiteness, wh- whiteness as property is, is uh, she makes the argument um, by looking at the, court cases that were unsuccessful um, before Brown versus Board of Education in bringing down segregation, she makes the argument that in the in the court case documents, in the in the arguments presented um, to keep segregation, that the lawyers themselves understood that whiteness was a form of property that must that that needed to be protected. So the methodology of the the piece is really interesting because what she's looking at is she's looking at the um, I, I mean the failure, but also the success of a legal system that worked very diligently to protect something that we now are having a very hard time of even talking about. Mm. We're having a very hard time even saying the word white, I think, without people kind of freaking out um, or white supremacy or um, making kind of um, astute racial analysis um, arguments about uh, about race without it being kind of this... um, this this moment of 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 injury, um, but uh, Cheryl Harris kind of maps out how um, an entire judicial and legal system was set up with the understanding that it was protecting something as a kind of exclusionary force, and that was whiteness, and yeah. that um, that our current understanding of property even now is um, predicated on uh, on whiteness. And she ends the piece by looking at affirmative action to, to make this argument. Um, I, I'm going to read yeah. a little bit yeah. out of it just for a minute because I, I, I want to then um, just talk to you about the beginning of your book again. So she continues about her grandmother who's, mm-hmm. who's, um, who passes as white. My, my grandmother's story illustrates the valorization of whiteness as treasured property in a society structured on racial caste. In ways so embedded that it is rarely apparent, the set of assumptions, privileges, and benefits that accompany the status of being white have become a valuable asset that whites sought to protect and that those who passed sought to attain by fraud if necessary. And then she has this line, because the presumption of freedom arose from color, white, and the black color of the race raised the presumption of slavery whiteness became a shield from slavery, a highly volatile and unstable form of property. And when I returned to the very beginning of, of your book, after being exposed to Cheryl Harris's work, and I look at the second page, which has only two lines on it, that says, how simple and clean this love of money, how clean and direct the story of money, it reads entirely different. Like this, I feel like there's this really rich conversation happening, but as a, so when I encounter the beginning of your book again, it's not the same book. Oh, thank you, David. That's really kind of you. And I, um, I love talking about 
<laughs> this article or this piece by Cheryl Harris or this this part, um, I'm so interested in sort of talking about this more. I returned to whiteness as property so much because, I mean, my entire dissertation was um, was in conversation with it, but also because I think that it's a text that um, is absolutely significant and necessary in this current moment um, in sort of talking about... Um, the rise of uh, um, the rise of a, a kind of populist uh, neo-Nazi rhetoric uh, of 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 whiteness um, as a, as being a kind of um, a source of injury rather than a property. So, um, and then I will also say that whiteness as property, I think, is really important to Asian American studies, and that's the other thing that this book was really trying to think about is. Um, I, I, while I was putting the while I was finishing the edits for this book, um, the I was really struck by the discourse around um, the murder of Akai Gurley um, and the Asian American community sort of um, protesting the police officer that had um, killed Akai Gurley. If you're familiar. Um, and, and sort of arguing that freedom is what white per police officers uh, receive rather than um, I mean so so there's a kind of no notion that um, if one wants to attain property, then one must work towards whiteness, which I which is something that um, I feel very strongly that um, Asian American politics, must engage with because it's already being engaged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you be willing to read the um, part you wrote about your own grandmother and the acknowledgments? Um, sure. Oh, is this because of the the Cheryl Harris well, connection? Also, no, I was actually thinking about the question of debt. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is the grandmother connection. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, you explicitly um, connect your. Um, your, your acknowledgement towards your grandmother mm -hmm. to this question of debt in the book, even though this isn't the acknowledgements, it felt like it was part of the book. Oh, it, it, that's great because I actually, I, I thought a long time about whether it should be at the beginning of the book or if it should be at the end of the book. And when mm -hmm. it was at the beginning, this was almost, I, I felt like it functioned like a poem and I wasn't sure about that. So it's really nice to hear you say that mm -hmm. it functions like a poem at the end of the book. Yeah. Um, okay. For my grandmother, a farmer who loved three different gamblers, a politician, a police officer, the state, who ruined her life, who lived her life paying off the debts of others, at seven her mother's, then her lover's, from then on till the rest of her life, any and every person she loved. For the conversations I overheard her having, the drought shrivels them up, the flood washes them away, the wild boars take them all, and the free trades, the IMF. She tells me over the phone she despises those who, de who depend on books. They're dangerous and foolish. She sends a box of potatoes to every person she thinks could help my father. They accept and are never anywhere to be found. When the debt collectors come, when everything was taken and gone, when nothing but some letters remained, when no one wanted to live with her, and I was in Paris, she would call and describe new plans, a mandustan, keep up delivery service. Everyone she knew was too tired. 
they conserved their energies for church meetings, stall prayers. I plotted to move her to France. Maybe she could work as a cashier at the Monoprix, to be her ghost instead of with her. All of the chemicals they demanded from her soil stitched a home at the bottom of her heart and quilted her insides bare. She moved away from the city to a praying cottage to live away from traders. On the phone, she would tell me of new money-making plans, schemes of pure labor, pure body, pure exhaustion, nothing but her bones. We've been listening to Yun Song Kim read from Gospel of Regicide. You have this line in, in pending protest guides where you say, identification without solidarity, solidarity as theft, is the history of how much organizing. And g- given you, you speaking today about this particular moment we're in uh, around the rise of, of white nationalism in a, in a very overt way, this feels like a, a potential critique of a lot of potential organizing on, on the left. And mm-hmm. um, I, I was wondering if what inspired those lines for you. Yeah, I mean, so this is um, to return back to um, our discussion of Cheryl Harris and debt and then my discussion of the Akai Gurley's murder. Um, I, I mean, so I think that, that there's a kind of... Um, the discourse currently is that there needs to be something very explicitly that moves ag- against um, the rise of fascism. And I think that a lot of people... Um, who agree would just agree that yes, there needs to be pushback uh, from 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 the rise of fascism. Um, however, how this happens is the the conundrum. I think that um, is being debated. I mean, the discourse around Hillary, the discourse around Bernie, um, who should have whose whose grievances um, could be prioritized and not priori- prioritized, whose grievances were um, too explicit, who. Um, who, who took too much space, it, it becomes kind of the way that um, it's discussed. And um, it, it really does happen that it, it becomes a kind of um, a sacrificial game that it's some people can be can wait, some people can be sacrificed, some, some causes can um, be put on hold um, in the, the efforts against the fight against fascism. Um, but that is also the rhetoric that, that I think too many have heard for a very long time, that mm. one's um, causes, one's efforts, one's um, grievances, one's uh, the, the structural injustice that one's community is under can, can, is perpetually put on hold um, for the kind of, for the greater good argument. Um, well, I, that makes me think of like the, we always need to attend to the white working class. It's never right. talked about as the working class, right. including yeah. all of the working class. Yes. It's the white working class that we haven't listened to hard enough in mm. order to solve getting yeah. the right president. Right. Yeah. I mean, wasn't there a New York Times headline recently about how um, the presidency is as entertaining as a reality television show? So therefore, that's that, that where that's like what it's doing. It's it's helping um, the presidency to to be entertaining. And so that's just something to sort of 
um, acknowledge as if this is like a like a like something that um, is a good thing instead of just more fascism. But um, to return, so the Kambayi River Collective, um, a statement put out by Black feminists. Um, stated that that it's really when black women are free that everyone will be free. So looking to the bottom is a strategic move, a strategic political move, because it means if the bottom, if the, the people at the very bottom um, are free, then everyone else will absolutely be free. But that um, it doesn't work that way for all the tiers above, I mean, just kind of strategically thinking, um, this has been argued before, right? Um, there was an essay that I read a few few years ago by Jared Sexton, um, The Propriety, Proprieties of Coalition, um, and he sort of analyzes uh, the grievance that Korean and Korean-American um, grocery store owners and merchants and scholars um, stated they had um, with the U.S., um, and then the way in which the, these grievances somehow became amplified and and even and and utilized as as a further critique of um, particularly uh, at the African American communities um, that um, were a part of the uprising in 1992. So, uh, it, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. I think this might be a good time to have you read uh, Translating Lineage. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then we can talk about that because I feel like there's something in this poem that really like reverberates uh, th- in what I imagine to be your, your politics. Um, translating Lineage. The first time I heard the phrase Hojok as a panda was a pre-IMF soap opera. I've heard it since in family arguments, during fights in restaurants. I will remove you from the lineage is how it might translate, or perhaps from the lineage you will be expunged. Often the accused will respond, sure, go ahead. Displaying their ambivalence to the lineage, their ability to remain calm during hurricanes, ultimatums, Recognition for the accuser to remove the accused, a fancy, a drawing, a possibility. To refashion your lineage in a moment of danger. War, second families, North selectors who never returned, constructed property, orphans sent away, immigrants without papers, stolen persons, outside the lineage and made outside of the lineage. Poetry as archive for those without lineage. Poetry as loom for those without lineage. Treacherous present for the only future imaginable. The act of denying the father is to peer into one's record, into one's records, and situate first the enslaved and then all others. When you end the poem, situate, situating oneself outside of lineage in a treacherous present that denies lineage and centers the enslaved above all, like you, you referenced in the um, Black Feminist Manifesto, um, I wonder if this is a form of regicide. When, when you say, I fight against my birthright, 
if part of the killing isn't just the killing of the king, but is it also a killing of of uh, certain tribal narratives um, or you know identity narratives or maybe even certain uh, notions of self? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it has to be. I think that. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think that it's. So there's a there's a concept, um, a phrase that I I like very much um, that Spivak uses in an interview she gave two years ago. Gaitri Spivak uses. Um, she says strategic sabotage, but then she uses the word intimate later. So I've sort of been situating it as like an intimate sabotage. She says that um, that in order to really to to really do harm to something that you want to harm for political reasons, um, that you have to know it very well. Um, and the example that she gives is uh, Algerian um, secretaries who would arrive um, hours before their shift would start to send um, uh, messages or communicate for the resistance, um, that they could only do this because they knew how the machines worked. And that is how... Um, resistance or political action often often happens it's by someone who is actually very intimate with the with the with the machine that they're trying to implode explode rupture so forth um and and to go back to what you're saying i think that um the intimate sabotage is that right one knows the machine but it's also very intimate it's intimate of the self. I think it's sabotage of the self that we have constructed that one might actually value as the thing to be most valued. I wonder what it would be to, to take it both both ways, that it's that you are using the tools that you are most intimate with against the things that you know are against you, but also thinking about sabotage as, a, as an intimate process, an interior process. Um, because the self that exists is is a self that exists in, in a current construct that um, and it might not be that you who you are can exist as you are in the thing that you're working towards so if if the answer in 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 your construction is to center the enslaved that the freedom of the enslaved is the liberation of of everybody in society I don't know if that's if that's like the, right to say it, um, the or like to center abolition as yes. as the right uh, or think yes. Well, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I poorly I said that. No, poorly. no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but but prior to the translating lineage, you you bring up the work of Ellen Wu mm -hmm. around uh, model minorities, right. and and this brings up this question of. Um, of allegiances, and I'm hoping maybe you for people who don't know what the model minority phenomenon is, yeah. particularly in relationship to the civil rights movement. Um, could you speak a little bit to what the model minority uh, phenomenon is and then the ways in which a regicide of lineage is uh, a counterpoint essentially to it? Yeah. Um, so Ellen Wu, uh, a scholar I admire very much, writer, um, wrote uh, The Color of Success. And in the opening, she traces the, um, the she traces the, the way in which model minority became popularized or invented. And she 
um, goes through how it was literally invented by a white sociologist in the 70s, I want to say maybe 80s, um, and then popularized by two New York Times writers um, shortly thereafter. Yes. But before you talk about it, maybe just uh, oh, right. for people who don't even know, know that term. Know what model minority is. Um, so it's the, the, it's the, the concept or the notion that um, Asian Americans or non-black but non-white ethnic minorities um, are model citizens or that their communities have uh, are displaying the kind of economic and educational success that other minorities should look towards. So it is it, 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 that they are the models of the, the group called minority. Um, but uh, the reason I, I situate that it's... Um, I mean, Ellen Wu situates that it's an entirely white construction, that before the 70s, there was no reason to look at particularly Asian Americans or Asians as, as models because of the Cold War, because of all the wars in um, the of, of in Asia, through Asia, but also communism, um, and then also the kind of um, immigration bans that were placed up until 65. Um, so that it's only with the civil rights movement and the lifting of the immigration ban that um, happened because of the civil rights movement. And this is something that um, a scholar like Lisa Lowe talks about, Asian American scholar, that um, that immigration, the lifts on immigration, I just want to say this again because it's really important, um, the lifts on immigration, particularly from Asian countries, happened as a result of the civil rights movement. So it was um, though, 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 though Asian Americans were not um, in, involved on mass in the civil rights movement. There were um, figures, but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily they were protesting against the immigration um, bans in place. That as a result of the of the legislation that happened through the civil rights movement that a lot of the immigration bans were lifted. Mm. So the Immigrant Acts of 1965 were the direct results of the civil rights movement. So we are we are politically linked um, in many ways, even if um, even when we don't know how. So uh, Ellen Wu um, maps out how then it was popularized, this term, by the New York Times, um, but also by um, p politicians and, and different people who had an interest in sort of exceptionalizing um, Asian immigrants um, against what they thought, uh, what they saw as um, the moral failings of the black community. So it was a very explicit kind of pitting um, that unfortunately Asian Americans have actually taken up that word. Some, some um, Asian Americans have taken up this phrase as a kind of compliment rather than a, a kind of um, the imagination of white supremacists, I will just say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about, you, you bring up the details of two murders of African-Americans, where the murderers get off with pretty much a, a slap on the wrist. Um, you don't mention, even though I'm, I know that you've explicitly, ch I, I suspect that you've s explicitly chosen these murders because they were committed by Asian-Americans, you don't mention the race of the people who, who kill the African-Americans. Um, so there is a sort of a withholding and also a presenting in, 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 in these sections. 
what are you doing with presenting it this way? And, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, I mean, I went back and forth quite a bit um, because I wasn't sure if I should also say the names of the murderers. Um, I, I've been, I've read literature before that that um, advocates against always saying the murderer's name, that as a society we actually tend to remember their names more so than the people who've passed or their victims. Um, and I do think it's true that in the news when something happens, I end up remembering the, the name of the mass shooter instead of... I, I don't remember... I don't know any of the, the names, actually, of any, of, of their victims of um, or really any anything else. I, I end up knowing very much about... Um, the murderer. And so I, I, I sort of, I struggled with the section quite a bit because I wasn't really sure. And I'm not really sure. Um, I think it's still a draft of something to come. But um, I wanted it to be really explicit that what is being remembered in this poem is the murder and the life of Latasha Harlins and Akai Gurley and um, the, the situation around um, them. And I wanted what to be remembered of the murders are the 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 sentence that they received and I wanted that to be the most explicit thing yeah I mean I'll, I spun out an, an perhaps an entirely different uh, narrative around the absence but, oh and, yeah what was your what was your uh, <laughs> well I want I mean uh, because you don't give us the race of the perpetrators and because they get very little uh, punishment I, I assume they're white and oh. so I wondered if part of the statement was a critique of of Asian allyship with uh, like white liberal oh, ra racial categories absolutely. and the and the segments of the Asian community that have taken the model minority um, model to heart. Mm -hmm. No, that's not spinning out at all. I that would say a... that that would right. I mean, because I. Um... Uh, if you if you know, in both cases in ninety one and in two thousand and sixteen, um, at the jury in ninety one did say that it was manslaughter and wanted the maximum sentence um, for manslaughter, which would would have been sixteen years, and the judge um, reduced it, re rejected it, and reduced it to five years probation and community service, and um, pretty much the same thing happened in two thousand and sixteen. Um, so, uh, at first, the argument I, I even heard that there were community, um, some, some Asian organizations in New York were, were stating that, um, the fact that it, that it went to trial at all is, a, is even, um, a way to sort of understand racial injustice, which is just madness. I think that this is like fundamental to me. It's like, it's, it's, it cannot be any more absurd to think of, um, to think of uh, anti-black violence or black death as a kind of right, as a kind of right of the citizen, the citizen that is, um, that is, who who is imagined as, as a white liberal subject in particular. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't help as I was reading um, essays on your art forum, Contemporary, also seeing different iterations of what I would call regicide. So I, I wanted to I wanted to see if this felt like one to okay. you. Um, you have this article called Art Without Artists Against the Artist CEO mm. that takes this question of money, debt, and capitalism, which you're also confronting gospel of regicide, into the world of art making. 
but also feels like a when you're when you read translating lineage and i'm thinking about sort of cutting killing the king being um centering the most oppressed rather than your own story um I wondered about your, the relationship to selfhood and regicide in, in, in this article as well. And at one point you say, art without artists centers on the labor, the objects, and the subjects of the making rather than the myth of its inventor. It deprioritizes the artist by situating the artist as a laborer. The goal is to eliminate the category of artists, deprioritize intellectualism, immaterial activity, invention as the most radical practice possible and to prioritize art for survival. Can you, um, can you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, um, it is true. I do think that I uh, write drafts of drafts of drafts everywhere. <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been thinking about that a lot, that I, it seems like I'm rewriting or writing um, drafts of things that are essentially the same thing. Um, but Art for um, art Without Artists was written with, with Maya, who I have written other articles with. Um, and it's something that we have been thinking a lot about. And I think that this is not, this, 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 this thought is not in any way um, original. It's just a kind of reiteration of the ways in which um, s- uh, just to go back, um, the, the prioritization of certain kinds of imagination or certain kinds of acts and the deprioritization of uh, the bodies and the life and the labor of others. So um, what you read, I mean, yes, I think that there's way too much emphasis on the branding of the artists who, um, for those who are familiar with a lot of contemporary installations or contemporary art, um, it's almost, um, it's, it's basically quaint to bring up that, um, the artist doesn't have to make anything anymore. That, um, I read this really kind of like fantastic, um, write up of Maurizio Catalan, who is a, a sculptor, um, he has made, um, he, he made like the Pope falling down sculpture for those who know art. I mean, he's, he's kind of like a trickster, prankster, sculptor, contemporary artist. Um, it's an interview he, um, had where they were talking about a set of wax sculptures that he was commissioned, that he just commissioned the Museum of Wax people to make, um, for him. And none of this was said in, in any kind of, with, with any kind of irony. There was, I, I could not find irony within the interview or within him. It was just kind of, of course, well, like I had the idea. And so I just like asked uh, the, the Museum of Wax people to make it for, for me and... Huh. And and that and and I think I, I think that this is really interesting um, that uh, that we have an entire system where we're not really we're not we're not even really supposed to ask questions about the material questions about the labor um, because the idea is the most important thing. Um, but I really I wonder if the uh, if the idea. I'm I'm not I'm really not convinced that people have these exceptional singular ideas that are just them and no one else's. I think that it's as one makes or as other things happen, 
how is there no ideas? How is there no invention? How is there no creativity? Um, and this isn't to kind of glorify the, the worker or, or, or the laborer, but it's to sort of wonder why it's, it's become this kind of... Um, I see this in poetry. I, I mean, we saw this kind of... Um, within the conceptual poetry or self-identified conceptual poetry movement, that it really became this kind of, it was my idea to do this thing to this thing that is my object. So I um, I will, the, the transaction I, drives me nuts um, because it's so repetitive and so racialized. It's, it's almost always a racialized uh, dynamic where it's a white artist um, who believes that the material, the labor, the creativity, the ideas of someone else, um, that the body is theirs for them to remix um, and that this is some kind of original invention. But even when people aren't remixing, mm-hmm. say they're just writing, mm-hmm. um, it feels like you're critiquing this idea of of newness and invention and, and individual genius larger than just the people who in the conceptual movement or who are, who are yes, remixing things. Absolutely. They were just um, an easy reference, I think. Yeah. yeah. But, but I wondered if that was part of what you were nodding towards with the title of the forum, Contemporary, the, the contempt for the contemporary. Mm-hmm. Is it a contempt for the idea of newness that and originality. I mean, mm-hmm. is that part of where uh, the content contempt lies? Yeah, uh, uh, the way that it was imagined was that that contemporary holds the word contempt within it. Um, that for many who exist in this moment, that it does not. The moment does not exist without our contempt. Um, but the the critique of newness. I mean, it's interesting because I I I, I do feel very critical of this. Um, of the valorization of newness and invention. But I also very much agree with people like Max Haven, who argues that um, that there is a suppression of the radical imagination or a, a kind of imagination that wants to think of things differently. Um, so, I, I mean, and I haven't really fully thought of this Maybe you'll see this in drafts of in drafts of things, <laughs> but I do I do think that um, with all of the the kind of repetition of certain kinds of narrative tropes, certain kinds of political allegiances, certain kinds of characters that arise, it can only th- this repetition is at the behest of a fundamental suppression of of something else. Um, I don't really know. I mean, I see assemblances of this something else in things that I read and in conversations that I have. But I think it's something else because we don't really have it fully yet because it because we have this other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you in the Gospel of Regicide, you you chronicle some micro and macro aggressions within the poetry world, I would say. Um, and you also um, unpack some of these in, in contemporary, the mm-hmm. art forum as well. So things like the tokenization of non-white artists right. in the name of diversity, the question of whether art can be free of politics, and an examination of the notion of freedom it, itself. Uh, I was hoping you could talk to us about what you call art's white cube of freedom, of which of which you say... Art's white cube of freedom depends on the myth that aesthetics are devoid of oppression. The white male critic's acknowledgement that it isn't would entail a responsibility to cede his freedom, which is why requests for him to do so often produce a wounded cry of protest. Freedom of speech, i.e. the freedom to express, 
is the aestheticization of the myth of freedom. Because before we move on to the notion that art is for the free, we must account for the foundations of U.S. freedom. I love that. And it makes me think a little bit about when you brought up the conceptual poet Mm -hmm. debacles that have been happening in the last, I don't know, 10 years um, and the racialization of those. Um, But can you talk more about this, this notion of freedom that you're troubling? Yes. Um, So I, I spent some time, um, I'm just going to use this example because I think it's the most concrete one and I feel like I've been a little bit abstract. Um, I've been really interested in the racialization of innovation and whiteness as property. And it was um, Duchamp's 1917 Fountain that actually really helped me think about um, the two things kind of together and to critically push everything that you just stated. So, what, you know, in my art history classes, in art history, you sort of learn that there was like painting and like people did this laborious thing called sculpture and like everyone made things, except it turns out even that wasn't really true because there were painting houses even then where other people were, were, were doing little bits here and there, if not all of it. Um, but anyway, the, the, the narrative goes that before we have this rupture of, uh, you know, quote unquote, radical movements like Dadaism, Surrealism, um, Duchamp, Modernism, Postmodernism, that you had all this kind of uh, labor um, of the artist and the inventions of the artist. And then comes Duchamp, um, and takes a urinal and says it's a fountain and this sort of is this like liberatory gesture where we're all as artists and as viewers um we're all liberated from the act of 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 labor and art that that we can all kind of conceptualize our surroundings and that is is an act of art um which in this kind of trajectory, I mean, there's something very seductive about that. It's also very liberal. That it's and it's it's a kind of like a like the, like a faux Buddhism that irritates me very much. Like everything around you is lovely. You just have to like appreciate it. Is kind of how I I've come to think <laughs> of that version of the, yeah. the of the story. But you know, it, people take this very seriously. I mean, Duchamp was awarded the Turner Prize. I mean, art critics voted him this piece as like the most important piece of modern art um, and I did a, a lot of research in my dissertation looking at how um, e- even in this narrative we don't situate that this whole thing happened in the United States um, it happened in New York City it happened with his patron Walter Arnsberg um, and it happened in Jim Crow America it happened during a time where there were um, public sanitation laws there were um, private and sort of widely known um, housing segregation, as there's currently housing segregation. In New York in particular, um, African Americans um, who did not own property could not vote. So this was not a like a raceless New York. It um, was absolutely a, and fundamentally um, an anti-black, a segregated space. And so the object of the urinal to be liberation is really interesting because it could easily be um, a signifier of segregation. So then, mm. so then, what would that do to the narrative of art if we were to say Duchamp taking the object of segregation 
to say fountain um, is not necessarily liberatory, but it's actually didactic because, yes, it's true. It's both a urinal and a fountain of segregation or other things. Right. There's just so many ways to look at it if it's not in this sort of um, I mean, if some in a lot of the art, uh, art historical texts that I looked at, he's sort of, we're reminded that he's French. So we're sort of supposed to think of him in this kind of raceless Europe, which is, it's not, it's not true over there, but it's, but he's really <laughs> not in Europe. He's, he's in the U.S. Um, and in the archival research that I did, he is not just in the U.S. This happens with his patron, as I mentioned, Walter Arnsberg, and they both have a vested interest in this um this gesture. Uh, they both have a vested interest and they both um, are really committed to being right about this gesture. And I think that's actually really fascinating that um, it's paid, it's a sponsored gesture. I think that like that's not something that we actually talk about very much. We also don't talk about how um, when I was in the archives, um, part of w what I've been writing is that... Um, um, that there was basically a 20-year relationship that formed so that Duchamp could be collected or canonized um, in a museum space. Um, so in the letters you see, like, Walter Arnsberg is writing to curators at, at the Met, at the Art Institute of Chicago, at the Walker Museum, and then Duchamp is sort of visiting these spaces to see where essentially his art pieces could, could reside. Um, this is not an act of chance or operation. This is not... You know, it's it's not the lightness that we think we're, we're asked to think of when we think of these quote unquote gestures. It's fundamental financial planning. And I think that I, I, I don't want to I, I think if we thought of um, institutional art spaces as fundamental financial planning, um, we might have a fun, we, we will have a very different conversation as to why certain things exist, why certain things don't, why certain things are called innovative. Who is, in, who is vested in, this, in the title of innovation? Why, why, why were patrons in New York, wealthy patrons who, you know, Walter and Louise Arnsberg, they never worked a day in their lives. And I don't say this to say that we should all be working, but they came from both old and new forms of money. Um, what, what was in their interest in sort of in making sure that this was, this was the collection that we would remember? And it, it and it is the collection that we remember when it comes to Western modern art. So they succeeded in some ways. And um, I'm really invested and committed to making sure that when we're talking about the white cube and when we're talking about innovation and experimentalism um, or, or the museum space that we have those conversations. Um, this doesn't mean that the work disappears, that it's dismissed. It just means that um, we need to have a, a bigger conversation as to all of the players. Well, it's interesting when you think of the white cube of freedom and then ask the question, the freedom for what? But mm -hmm. also when you think of Audre Lorde emphasizing interdependence and, mm -hmm. and Toni Morrison, the function of freedom is to free someone, someone else. Yeah there's a sense of feeling like you're part of a, of a fabric. Um, it's, it's, I mean, I wouldn't say you're not free, but it's a very different conception than right. this idea also of the, of, of, uh, 
genius and it all came from me. Right. Um, and your co-founder of Contemporary wrote a piece, The Emotional is Theoretical, mm-hmm. um, that argues that all aesthetic decisions are deeply political and asks, is there an interest on the part of a producer of art to take into account, gauge, and trace the material effects of their production on the lives of those who experience it, which I think is also interesting because all of these things, the interdependence, that freedom is the is the is to free someone else, mm-hmm. and to make art where you are thinking of and tracing the material effects of its effect on the other, they're all dissentering acts, right? And and yet, and counter to the the default notion of what art making is, right? In the United States, at right. least, right? Because art is sort of. Um, I mean, with the Jerry Saltz quote that we opened the freedom to oppress piece, it's like art is for those who want to be free. Um, I think that people who are really, um, there's a, there's a deep, deep romanticization of whatever this thing called art and freedom is and very little materialization that happens, um, in the discussion. I think that, that, that is very unfortunate because I, there are many, many conversations to be had about both of the words and why both, uh, the, the, there seems to be a kind of vested interest in making sure we don't actually have the the kind of materialist conversations we should be having about both the word art, expression, innovation, and freedom. Can you speak a little bit about um, the debacle that happened with the Poetry Foundation and the Asian American sampler? Oh. And... Uh, and your your article that you wrote mm-hmm. with Don Mi Che about it? Yeah. Um, the Poetry Foundation um, in 2014, was it, or 2013? Um, it feels like yesterday, though. So they, they, they one day just decided that they will make categories um, for the various ethnic minorities or minorities um, so that users of the site... Um, could easily find uh, poets by X um, category, which is fascinating. I mean, we, that in itself is a dissertation, a book to be written. Like, who who is the imagined user that needs to find information this way? Who is the imagined user that wants, that, 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 that needs this assistance? Um, and then why was resource how 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 did it happen that resources were devoted to this project instead of you know the many other th- ways that we can sort of think about poetry and race and gender and, and so forth so um Dami in a had mentioned on um that the Asian American sampler section I, I mean it was sort of kind of haphazardly put together um and said some and had some critiques of the sampler page and I shared my critiques with her and so we wrote this thing together um, and we sort of anticipated that people would immediately think that the critiques existed because Dami's Dami uh, was not quote-unquote included and that I was quote-unquote not included because this is how grievance is imagined that it's about a, a kind of direct inclusion rather than a critique of the structure so um I mean, though, at that point, Dami had had won, like, some pretty major prizes and had in, had basically the best book of, of you know, 
in, in ages. So why she was not included? I mean, I, 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 I would like to ask this question. Like, why was, who, who, who organized it? Who curated it? Um, right. Anyway, so aside from the fact that I don't think that that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a question to just kind of be just dismissed. We sort of ask, like, if it's being imagined at this current moment, it's because whiteness is already a kind of overarching framework that we're all supposed to kind of work and navigate around. And um, that the, the imagined user, I mean, from my understanding, that the imagined user is white and so is looking through and is, is kind of finding um, and, and that the, the, the kind of opaque decisions that are being made as to how, who is going to be included and how they're going to be included is also an incredibly, um, it's, a, it's a position of whiteness, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I want to ask you a question yeah. that's kind of an aside. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in the Gospel of Regicide um, something called a clepsydra, which is also your Twitter handle. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked it up. <laughs> and it's an ancient Greek water clock. Yeah. Um, how did this become the title of a poem and your avatar, essentially, in social media? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with that word. Um, I... I, I've just been very interested in the various different ways timekeeping has been imagined and been enacted. And I, in, in particular, Klepstra has really stuck with me because it's um, water and shadows was the, the imagined form of, of how to keep track of the day. Um, and this is really track of the day. It has like nothing to do with like the moment and whatever the year is, there's no such thing, right? So um, I've just been really interested in kind of that, the, the wanting to know where in the moment, but um, without the specificity that we currently have of what it means to, to keep time. Hmm. That's really nice. Yeah. So w- when we look at all, all of these kings to be killed, mm-hmm. so kings within gender injustice and racial injustice, in the art world and the world at large. Uh, I really love how the book ends with the line, what we want is impossible, unrealistic, and non-negotiable. I mean, it feels like that really encapsulates sort of the spirit of your, of actually both of your projects. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um, I, I don't use the word impossible um, abstractly. I think that, um, that that impossible is the c- current condition. It seems like for 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 many, and to not acknowledge that is um, would be, I mean, to not to not to not to not acknowledge that is beyond disingenuous. It's mm-hmm. just, um, I think, it, as someone who really is interested in politics, it's unfathomable actually to not acknowledge that impossibility is the current condition. Um, that doesn't mean that there's something else. Um, so I, I struggle with this with this because if I really have been feeling like it's not just that last year where I woke up every day and wondered. Um, it, it really does seem like the apocalypse is it's not a, a, it's not one day. It's just this kind of reoccurring force of um, of the the instability and the vulnerability that is supposed to be just our existence. Hmm. Um, but it's it was the years before that f- 
for for so many, and it was the centuries before that for others. And so, uh, I think that 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 when we talk about um, what is the horizon, like all of that has to be really thought of. But that I will not give up the horizon, and I know I'm not the only one. Hmm. That's really well put. Could we hear another poem? Yeah. Uh, I was hoping you would read Psalm. On 112. Psalm. You don't have to study to have. Regardless of work, there is a home. Love is not a condition for safety. Survival is possible because survival is guaranteed. More, more is sequestered. Punishment is what was once enacted but can no longer be imagined, an enlarged footnote for memories. Love is not the condition for safety, but becomes a possibility. Amen. There's only two poems with amen, actually. And you've read both, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Since we've been talking about potentially the idea of, of true freedom and love being interdependent, mm-hmm. uh, and involving the liberation of others. Uh, perhaps this would be a good time to su- any work or artists that you would particularly like to center now that is, uh, that is moving to you yeah. that maybe you don't feel like is getting, uh, as much mm-hmm. attention as you would like. Bolaño receives a lot of attention. So it's not that I don't think he receives attention, but I, but I reread *Distant Star*, translated by Chris Andrews, quite frequently. Actually, yeah, do you? I love that book. Yeah, I reread it very often, um, and I just reread *Nazi Literatures in the Americas* in Antwerp, because I think there's something about his trajectory where he's he's fundamentally committed to. Um, to, to the study and the dismantling of fascism in his literature that it, uh, for me is, is quite a model, actually. I mean, it, it isn't to say that I, I'm, I, I admire writers who kind of go in between subjects and, and float around, but um, I think now more than ever the, the sort of practice that he took has been really important for me. And that book, Distant Star, um, I, I reread it like three times last year. <laughs> I'm like trying to brainwash myself with the, with the narrative and the, the observations made in that book. And then there's... Have some... you read By Night in Chile too? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I, I'm someone who reads everything that the writer um, wrote. Sometimes it doesn't actually end up being a good thing. Um, like I read all of Murakami, and that was actually not that good. I should have just read one. And Milan Kundera, I read everything. And then I was like, oh, maybe I should have just read <laughs> one. The good ones. Yeah, I just read one. But 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 that's that's another thing. Um, I returned to Black Marxism by Cedric Robinson. It's not... Um, I think that philosophy and poetry are, for me... Um, indistinguishable. So Lucille Clifton, but she receives a lot of praise as well. Continuous praise, which is a good thing. Um, Wanda Coleman is someone who I think that we could read more of. Um, I look at her poetry quite a bit. Yeah. 
and then I'm going to think of like 10 people tomorrow. So I'm sad that I'm like, <laughs> well, if you do, you can send me a list and okay. I, can, I can put them up on the, okay, on the blog. Thank you. Um, and what about you? What are you, what would we expect from you next? Um, so I'm finishing copy, uh, one of the copy paper series, um, which will be a novella. So it's, um, that should be completed very soon I have I've been working on the drafts for quite some time and then I have a few different essays that I'm working on um, and then I translated a book of poetry with my brother over the summer um, have you been lonely lately by Kim on he and I'm really excited about this translation she's kind of an amazing human being and just an amazing poet and um her you, practice is really interesting do you know what press it's coming out on? um it will most likely be noemi uh-huh. no pressure noemi if, <laughs> if you're listening to this uh there's she she's she's really interesting she's a um she's a self-taught poet so she um is sort of uh, she has a really interesting take on institutionalized poetry in Korea and institutionalized poetry elsewhere that um, I agree with. Um, but also, uh, when I, I visited her this winter and learned that she um, has a, like a poetry reading group or just a writing group of um, of people near her in the city in Jinju, where she lives, um, who are interested in poetry, and the group is comprised of everyone from acupuncturists to factory mm. workers, um, and they meet once a month and speak for four hours. And um, the way that she explained it to me, it seemed like the most utopic conception of a, a poetry classroom that. That they would all, I mean, yeah. So I, I was telling her that I would like to live near her for a year. That sounds great. Because, I mean, I can't just go to one meeting. It's different. Um, but also this sort of non-institutional formations of poetic communities. I'm, I'm, I will forever be interested. Well, it's great having you on Between the Covers, Yoon Thank Song. Thank you so much for having me, David. We are talking today to Yoon Sung Kim, the author of Gospel of Regicide from Naomi Press and the founder and editor of Contemporary. You can just say contemporary, actually, because <laughs> no, really? we always just say that the T is the T can be silent. Really? Yeah, I want to be able to say it right. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I, I have actually just committed to saying contemporary. Well, yeah. but for people to find it online. Oh, right. Contemporary. Yes. The online art forum. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Yoon Kim's work can be found at yunsong.com, E-U-N-S-O-N-G.com, and at contemporary.org, as well as the bonus material at the Between the Covers Patreon page, patreon.com slash between the covers. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sa Petite Ami, can be found on iTunes and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers 
can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.